Ciao, here is a conversation with Nathan Kutz. Professor Kutz teaches at the University of Washington, Seattle, and is one of the leaders of the Artificial Intelligence Institute in Dynamical Systems, founded by the National Science Foundation. Together with uh, colleagues and collaborators, he is my superhero in the field, uh, not necessarily because of the interesting way in which he put together AI and dynamical systems, and not necessarily because of the great results he got uh, in the years applying these ideas to dynamical systems, but I would say mainly because of uh, his passion is really uh, you can feel it um, and because of his methodology so you can really uh, see the transparency of his thought process and therefore of his goals and this is uh, transferred into the fact that uh, his papers are freely available online his data as well and his uh, codes as well you can use them to do your research do your works run your simulations and your experiments um, this could be it about the conversation, but it's not. We actually talked about some technical things like the relation between the Koopman theory and the inverse scattering transform in the context of partial differential equations. We talked about this tension between having uh, interpretable models and powerful black box ones. Uh, so you can think of uh, dynamic mode decomposition, kernel methods, sparse identification of nonlinear dynamics, um, and things like this on the one hand. On the other, autoencoders, neural networks, and um, things like this so this is it uh, there are a lot of things we discussed as well i hope you enjoyed the episode uh, if you like it put a thumbs up uh, subscribe to the youtube channel connect with me on twitter linkedin and then please uh, if you can support me on patreon uh, the links in the description and uh, here's the conversation So, uh, thank you for joining this conversation. I would like to start uh, this episode talking about uh, the way which the University of Washington uh, is going to lead, or is already leading, I guess, the AI Institute in Dynamical Systems. Uh, what's the scope uh, of this uh, institute? What's, wh who is involved? And what's also the, the, its position with respect to the uh, overarching perspective of the National Science Foundation? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking the question. So that the National Science Foundation has made a commitment to invest heavily in AI, machine learning. Uh, we kind of all understand that um, the world is changing rapidly with, what our, uh, with the capabilities we have, with the data, with computational engines that we now have. Um, just our ability to do extraction and processing of data sets that are so large. I mean, ultimately, the unsung hero here that we never talk about is sensors. Mm -hmm. uh, really, all of this is coming from sensor technologies, in my view, right? You, what we can do, like you just have to look at biology and see that the rapid increase in it's remarkable what they can do. Same thing with, however, you know, geophysics, what they can monitor space satellite imaging, but also these sensor arrays they can place everywhere. So really it's the sensor technologies across all disciplines that have created this massive data pipeline that mm -hmm. we need to process and across diverse uh, disciplines. So this is where the these AI Institute efforts are coming in from the National Science Foundation, right? Is we can't do these by hand or at small scale on laptops. What we need to do is sort of do these at scale mm -hmm to really push forward science. So the AI Institute Dynamic Systems was one of the funded institutes. It's a $20 million commitment over five years. Its particular goal is uh, to some extent is to think about engin classic engineering systems. We're, we're thinking about control theory. We're thinking about how do I uh, build models where AI agents sit on top of them to help uh, help decision-making processes typically in these engineered systems. So things from autonomy to the digital twin, this is sort of in some sense, the wheelhouse of this AI Institute because we ultimately wanna build great physics and engineering models. And ultimately what a lot of engineering really wants to do is once you have these really great models, you'd like to control the system mm -hmm. and make it do what you want it to do. Um, and do this just from the data that you're acquiring in real time uh, from those systems. So that's really what the focal point is. And what we have is we've built this partnership with the 
a really fantastic group of of institutions that are in the Pacific Northwest broadly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, University of Washington is the center point, but we have partners at Montana State University, uh, Boise State University, Portland State University, University of Nevada, Reno, along with uh, Alaska and Hawaii. So that's mm -hmm. kind of our uh, Pacific Northwest hub. Uh, and we also partner with Harvard and Columbia uh, to sort of form a team all dedicated towards these efforts around taking these engineering and physics-based systems and understanding them and also thinking about how to control them and build great models for them from mm -hmm. the data. And this this grant is already it has already started, right? Last year. Yes, uh, we are. We are now. Uh, it started officially October first, and twenty twenty one. You know, it's it's been an interesting start, obviously due to COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, we were going to have a kickoff meeting in October, uh, but we've postponed that, and it's going to be uh, March sixteenth and seventeenth. It will be a hybrid format, so we'll have. Mm -hmm. uh, so actually, since it's a broadcast for anybody interested, we're going to. You know, people can register from anywhere in the world and we're right. going to broadcast all the talks and put all the materials online afterwards so uh, people can get a very good idea of what we do mm -hmm. and the kind of perspectives we have and we have an amazing uh, group of speakers both from industry and academics uh, to really sort of start thinking about where do we want to be in machine learning and ai in the engineering sciences mm -hmm. uh, we, as we develop this forward. So that's gonna be our kickoff meeting, which was gonna be in the fall, but mm -hmm. now uh, Omicron starting to come down. It looks like we can have this in person uh, here at the University of Washington, or at least in a hybrid format. Um, and so that's exciting for us mm -hmm. to get together finally in person. We've obviously been getting together on Zoom, mm -hmm. but yeah. uh, that's uh, it's just not as good. Yeah, not the same, so, definitely, uh, yeah. And how does it feel? I mean, uh, both personally, but also in the sense of work. Like, I mean, I've seen your trajectory and this was coming, I would say, because uh, uh, a lot of great words. Um, but uh, I mean, is, is this about keeping being what you've always been? Or I mean, has this jump changed the, the focus, uh, the priorities in the work you're doing? Um, I, I think one of the things that this is done is that I, I think a lot of the people that we've brought together on the team all of us um had a lot of methods around to contribute in this space but one of the things that the institute allows us to do is to sort of really build partnerships that can can take us further right mm -hmm. i think one of the things that i'm uh, really excited about in our sort of modern era of science and engineering is I think there's more and more a realization of how much we need partnerships. It is so difficult for an individual to be good at everything. There's just too much to know. And what you really need to do is find great partnerships where you can advance a field together because your skill set, while complementary, has some orthogonality to it. And it allows people to push further than they have before. And I think that's actually what I'm very excited about the Institute. So a lot of the things that are core ideas of you know what I have been doing, and also what I've been doing in partnership with Steve Brunton, who is a who is my a, just a fantastic collaborator and friend. And also, you know, we have this gr amazing group of jointly advised students and postdocs. But sort of a lot of our focal area on physics and farm machine learning, we can now couple with people who can bring additions to this, whether it be in control whether it be in application areas. So we're excited about what it can do for us in terms of extending um, our methods, but also these people coming in and extending us and giving us mm -hmm. new thought life uh, around what we can do. So I think overall, the hope is that you get this very harmonious uh, working relationship that leverages everybody's skills towards taking this to the next level. Mm -hmm. and. And the only other thing I would say with this is that uh, another key piece of the Institute is that we are really committed to making all of these resources, the data sets, the codes, uh, YouTube video lectures are yeah. all available, right? So that the hope is that, you know, a grad student across the world can say, I'd really like to get into this area. And there's always been such a big barrier to entry to get into fields. But here you could just say, hey, I I've actually have the code in hand. I have the data in hand. I have 
lectures that kind of really walk me through the state of the art. It just means that people can get started in that research effort and making contributions much more quickly. And I think part of what we want to do with the Institute is allow that to happen and, and set the stage and an example for others to sort of do this so that we can all progress uh, further scientifically much more quickly. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, yeah, you brought up a couple of points I'd like to, to go into. Uh, I would say that the most interesting uh, is probably uh, how do you see yeah, this, this, this revolution in, in uh, education? Um, so in my perspective, uh, or in, in, even in research, I mean, in my perspective, the work you're doing on YouTube, on uh, GitHub, uh, whatever, on the archive, um, you're really making it hard to people and founders to pretend they're not reinventing the wheel, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and this is, uh, in some sense, it's automating uh, institutions out of the way. And so I, I see a, a negative impact uh, in the sense that, I mean, we, we always say uh, automation is going to be bad for uh, low level works. Uh, but it feels like it could be, I mean, it may be that we need less universities in the world. I don't know. Um, uh, but, but yeah, how, how do you see things forward in this perspective? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I suppose I don't, I don't take too much of a cynical view of it. I, I, I feel like we will definitely change our operating procedures. But boy, I am so happy that yeah, you know no, yes. PyTorch Pi and TensorFlow are available, so I can do the science I want. You know, so there's a lot of that that was engineered and automated, uh, and there was a group of people who did that. But on the other hand, it's put what it means is my start point for some of these problems is much more advanced because I don't have to write all these algorithms myself, for instance. Um, it is an interesting thing, but even even automation, you know, we've we've seen this bef before, even in the industrial revolution, there, there was these fears. I mean, clearly the world will change, but I also feel that uh, there will be new opportunities. And and of course, whenever there's change in the world, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit unpleasant, right? Because it means that people have to change, or people a certain way of doing things is changing. But I think that's just a natural process that uh, to some extent is unavoidable. And I think what we're gonna be doing with this is we are gonna change the world and what it looks like for us in the future uh, will be different. But on the other hand, I, I still think there's a lot of really great places. There'll still be jobs, there'll still be interesting things. I, I don't think we're gonna automate everything out so there's nothing to do. I think uh, it'll just change where we are in the future um and, and also you know we we always have to do the cost benefit analysis and say well what do we, what do we gain by it you know there's there's some really interesting areas for us here you know for instance obviously um having self-driving cars might be a really interesting paradigm for us right already we have you know places like uber and lyft who are driving us around but you could imagine a fleet of automated cars does that mean we're going to you know, so people who maybe drive those cars currently will, there'll be other jobs that need to be found, but yeah. there will, but, but somehow society has always found those things. Um, but if we can have improved safety and, and uh, that would be a good thing and, and personalized medicine, for instance, right, that, yeah. that, that could be an amazing advancement for us. Um, so I think there's a lot of benefits, there'll clearly be negatives, but it's, it's really hard to project what they will look like down the road mm -hmm. uh i just know that the there's no avoiding progress it's going to come whether we like it or not so i think the best thing for us to do is to figure out uh, good ways to do it uh, another piece of this for the ai institute is that we are taking very seriously the ai ethics training mm -hmm. uh for the participants so i think that's also something good to be aware of like what are what are the appropriate uses of data and how mm -hmm. should we be uh doing things in that space right because i think that maybe that hasn't been given the most thought because mm -hmm. we can just make products and you know obviously there's a lot of pressure on google and facebook and uh and, and these companies uh twitter to just in terms of what is their responsibility level uh and what is their ethics you know for us doing sort of more engineering applications and designs and uh you know, we're not 
taking social media feeds and using that data for things. But yeah. uh, on the other hand, we will certainly have our own ethical concerns that we have to start thinking about, which, you know, gets us a little bit to this issue. What you asked is, you know, when you project few forward the future of AI, uh, what are the negatives that could be there? And there, and of course, there are many that could be there and we can mitigate some of them by starting to think a little bit ahead of time about how could these things be used uh, in ways that are are not good. And um, so let's let's start thinking about it now so we can mm -hmm. create a workforce that starts to respect those healthy boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, and so I guess from here we can already start. You, you already started, but we can go into the applications of the these ideas um, and particularly for my audience uh, I saw you published last year uh, a paper specifically on aerospace engineering um, yeah so yeah maybe an overview you, you mentioned medicine uh, I saw you did works in uh, neuroscience so if you could give us uh, yeah. an outline of the oh you bet yeah so uh, I will talk about the aerospace you know so uh, uh, Steve uh, Bratton and I myself as well as Krithika Manohar who was also one of our collaborators she was a former grad student and then she went to Caltech for a postdoc and is back now as a faculty mm -hmm. member uh, we've had this long uh, standing collaboration with Boeing Aerospace Corporation and one of the really interesting uh, aspects of what's going on with them is this idea of, of of, re, of bringing new skills to their workforce, right? So a lot of the engineers, if they've been out of college for more than five, six, seven years, maybe even four years, um, and been working there, right? You, you, you see the transition that's happened at the university where everybody's now starting to understand, I need a little bit of machine learning skill. How do I, and really all that means is I need to work with data. How do I work with data in intelligent ways to build models or to help me build my model? Um, and if you graduated more than four or five years ago, you don't necessarily have that skill set, but it's very clear to Boeing, not just Boeing, but to most industries uh, that somewhere in the aerospace design process, machine learning has to play a key role, just like scientific computing does, you know, and just like materials testing. So there's there's these three, there's this aspects of actually building components, there's designing them on a computational engine, but there's also how do you get the most out of your data and be able to put it into the into the overall workflow so that what you're actually doing is creating a, a better industry, a more efficient industry, because you've actually learned how to use your data to help you design airplanes, to design materials. All of that is needs to come into play. And so part of what we were doing with this aerospace, uh, that sort of this future of aerospace engineering paper was really starting to outline um, what are the what are the some of the considerations that need to be made in the aerospace industry? And really what they want at the end of the day is uh, the digital twin, right? This, this is idea that you could have an entire factory floor, which has all the physics, you know, between physics modeling, but also even management of robots on the factory floor, that you have this virtual world in which, first of all, nobody gets hurt. Second, you can sort of automate this process to see how are we doing, how can we improve, how do we optimize? And so, you know, streamlining the processes on these billion dollar endeavors, you know, many billions of dollars endeavors like airplane manufacturing, Right. If if you save one percent, it's a, a lot of money. Right. So this is the kind of thing that uh, I think is a good use of the data can really help these companies achieve. Right. And so uh, and so the aerospace industry is is close to us because we're here. Uh, Boeing has a advanced research center on the campus of the University of Washington, and we've been working with them. Uh, but I think every industry is going to go through this, that they're going to figure out that like, okay, we're an engineering design company. And uh, tr to traditionally what we've done is we have our models, we simulate and we build. Mm -hmm. And I think the last piece that you have to add there right now is say, and we do machine learning. We, we do when we take our data, how do we build better models and better simulations or improve the speed of these by integrating now uh, machine learning AI architectures into it. And also, how do you start thinking about, well, maybe our product could be one that we can actually put in 
you know, intelligent controls into this mm -hmm. thing uh, better than we've had in the past, just because we have better algorithms now. Yeah. 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 It's definitely this, this is definitely a place to, to get, to dig a bit deeper and go into yeah. the core, the, the fun. Yeah. yeah. I would say uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but optimal control is a big part of the work. Um, yeah. And so, um, um what are the ways in which you're dealing with this, uh, particularly in the context of uh, so data-driven dynamical systems, so for systems that don't have explicit uh, differential equations governing, symbolic expressions governing them, uh, yeah. but also how maybe it's more powerful for those problems which you actually have an equation. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think of the, the control problem as fantastic, right? Because uh, ultimately, for a lot of engineering systems, you know, you like to put controllers on them. And, and, uh, and, and you see this, by the way, in the curriculum of engineering. So one of the things that happened at some point, whether it was the 60s or 70s or 50s, every engineering program, electrical engineering and mechanical and aerospace, they all developed four or five courses on control because they realized how important this was. And they felt like every engineer has to fundamentally know about control theory. And so the, the Institute has this focus on dynamic systems, but really it's contextualized in terms of engineering systems, which are gonna come down to thinking about control. Um, what's I think very exciting is that you have so many emerging paradigms around control, data-driven control. So we have uh, you know, optimal control, you have, you have methods of uh, model predictive control. So you have the MPC frameworks, you have uh, reinforcement learning frameworks. You have things like dynamic mode decomposition with control. So let's say there's these different algorithms, all who have their appropriate uses. So for instance, reinforcement learning, which is something that's being uh, heavily pushed just straight up from the ML side or AI side of things, uh, fantastic architecture if you have enough data to really build learning often requires the most amount of data of all the methods mm -hmm. that we have. Uh, on the other hand, dynamic mode decomposition with control is like, I have very little data. I need a model right now. Mm -hmm. That's the one you're going to go to because it's a simple progression to a linear model that kind of gives you a state estimation for the future, which you might still be able to make some kind of control decisions based upon. So in general, I think at the institute level, we think about control as what is the appropriate controller? Well, the appropriate controller, uh, you first have to tell me like, like how much data do you have? What mm -hmm. kind of, uh, how quickly you're trying to control it? Do you have the ability to do extensive experiments on, on your system so that you can collect the data you might need for like a reinforcement learning agent? Or are you in a situation where you know, you're collecting just a little bit of data and you've got to, and the system is such that you're never going to be able to collect massive amounts and you're really always having to extrapolate, then you might want to very, use a very different paradigm. So I think for us, what we, what we, I think, want to do is develop an entire suite of potential algorithms and start to think about, well, use the one that's appropriate for the application in hand, mm -hmm. right? or even use them in combination. You may have a system where at least initially you don't have very much data. And so maybe at that, you start off with something like dynamic mode decomposition and control, which is a very fast algorithm needing very limited data. But then as your system progresses and you keep collecting more and more and more and more data, maybe you start changing your architecture because now you've collected mm -hmm. enough data to the point where well, I've been collecting data for a very long time and I actually can now build uh, a reinforcement learning agent, right? I have enough data to be able to really do that kind of problem where I can say, I, I can calculate these longer term planning trajectories and delayed rewards, um, but now I have enough data to actually build those, build those architectures that are there, right? Because that's typically very data hungry. Even like, mm -hmm. you know, you think about reinforcement learning for like the game of Go, right? That was right. A, quite an achievement. Uh, but if you just look at the cost of the data that you had to generate to make train that model, right? They, mm -hmm. It was 
it played so many games, <laughs> right? And, and there's a lot of engineering systems that playing a game is equivalent to running that system over some kind of trajectory and you just can't do it realistically, right? So these are all the trade-offs we have to start thinking about a little bit, uh, but, it, but it is exciting. And, and, uh, and I'm also excited to see what we come up with in the next five years, how we integrate strategies, because there might be some really interesting hybrid techniques where we use one model to, you know, maybe I can't generate all the real data, but I use one of my cheap models to generate proxy data for the RL. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of very interesting paradigms that might come about. People are very clever, right? And, uh, and we're seeing this all the time. People are coming up with really interesting architectures to do better with noise, do better with less data, to uh, be more robust, take care of outliers. I mean, uh, it, it's really fantastic to watch what people are doing across the community because there's there's a lot of really smart people out there um, doing really great things. Yeah, uh, yeah indeed. Um, Maybe even more quest, uh, technical, let's say. Um, let's say we, we, we gave the menu, we have reinforcement learning, DMD, we have something in between. Um, if we go even deeper, let's say, uh, talking about uh, maybe a bit of the math, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I feel there's this trade-off in AI uh, between uh, neural networks and uh, something a bit more coming out of the theory, uh, maybe less, less powerful, but more rigorous something like that. So I have this mm -hmm. tension between, I don't know, um, uh, kernel P, uh, kernel principal component analysis versus autoencoders, uh, uh, Cindy, so uh, sparse identification of linear dynamics and uh, neural differential equations. Um, mm -hmm. Do we need both? Oh, that's a good question. So it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. It, to, to some extent, when you try these things on certain models, for let's say, you know, toy models that we see how these things work, right? So let's, let's go to the Cindy versus uh, neural, uh, neural ODEs, for instance. Mm -hmm. To some extent, uh, you could take a, you could step back and philosophically you could make arguments of why you'd want to use one versus the other. Like, you know, if you come more from a physics modeling perspective, you might like the Cindy architecture because what it actually is giving you is like what you grew up with, governing equations, right? So this is, this is your classical education. You, you took a bunch of courses and you learned a bunch of physics. And what I mean by learning physics, you learned a bunch of different governing equations. Here's what they look like in, in quantum mechanics. Here's what they look like in electrodynamics. Here's what they look like in thermodynamics, right? So we learn governing equations as sort of in some sense, these representations of physics, these, these small, you know, little models that sort of mean so much to us, frankly, right? They, they tell us about how waves propagate, how heat diffuses, and how they're universal. These same building blocks of governing equations show up in every single application area we've ever seen. So there's a familiarity with it and there's an interpretability for us that we feel very comfortable with. Now, the computer scientists might push back a little bit and say, hey, well, you know, we need to move beyond that and allow the computer, because, you know, even our visualizations, we're so constrained down to three dimensions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the computer says like, look, I can build you models in 10 dimensions. That's still not even that high dimensional. But like for us, like, how do I, how do I visualize 10 dimensions? It's right, we can't do it easily. Uh, and some would argue that, why don't you just let the computer take over at that point, build the models where it needs. Neural ODs is very nice because it's sort of a hybrid. It's not just say, just here's a neural network that just black boxes. It's, it's really setting up a structure about dynamical flows, right? And so, so at least in that sense, it's very appealing still to us and in fact, I'll, I'll tell you, we're kind of working on some integration of neural ODs with Cindy right now. Nice. So we're trying to bridge these together. But I think both representations can be very powerful. Um, where I don't want to overcommit is to say any method is better than any other. Because when I, I, to me, the gold standard of what we really need to go after, where I'm hoping these techniques can take us, is to multi-scale physics problems. 
-hmm. I actually feel that that is where we really need to be going, where a lot of these methods, if we're going to challenge them and break them or have them actually pull things out for us, it's going to be in multi-scale physics problems. We're great about like, you know, I just mentioned, you know, we go take classes and we do all of our, you know, here's, here's, here's the governing equations in the different areas. But the fact of the matter is the most challenging problems we face today are multi-scale in nature. So there's some fine scale dynamics. You might even be able to write down explicitly what the equations are. But then when you course, course grain them at scale, there's a different physics up here. And the question is, how are these different length scales interacting? Actually, length and time scales, mm -hmm. fast scale physics, slow scale physics. One thing that I don't think we're very good at at all is multi-scale physics. We, we're really good at uniscale physics, but the mathematical architectures around multi-scale physics is very difficult. Uh, I don't think we've done a very good job there. I think it's obviously a very difficult problem, but my hope is this is really where Neurolody, Cindy, everything we can bring to the table, you know, auto encoders, coordinate transformations, separation of time scales, how do we train neural networks that can understand it and parse it and then also understand how they're supposed to fit together, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's where I'm actually hopeful that we finally have some mathematical, some really heavy-duty mathematical techniques that could potentially help us take steps in the direction to understanding the multi-scale physics problems. I think, for instance, uh, this is why I think biology is so hard. If you just look at neuroscience, you know, we're trying to understand the brain now, mm -hmm. but fundamentally the biggest challenge there, in my view, is it's so multi-scale in space and time. And you're trying to understand like your behavior out of this. So let's, let's call that, that's the most coarse brain level, like the macro level of, of, space and time right my decision process after i've taken in all this brain activity and i make a decision to make choice a versus choice b but it all started at these exceptionally fast time scales of neural firing rates right you're you know you're, you're down on the milliseconds and microsecond level but then it generates things that are happening for me um, decision levels of minutes right mm -hmm. how do you parse that and just simply brute force calculation of computation of like, well, I'll just resolve all scales. I don't think that's going to work for us. Well, we've seen that when we do that for a lot of our multi-scale systems, we end up with a big HPC framework where the solution I get out really doesn't match a trajectory I wanted. Like, it's not like it matches anyway. So I really would like to understand how to connect. And that's, that's kind of what we're, I think, really wanting to get after. Right. And then when you when you talk about multi-scale physics, you talk about you mentioned the brain, uh, fluid dynamics, so turbulence. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, we should just pause there really quick. Turbulence is the ultimate example of multi-scale physics, right? That has really eluded us for a long time, right? It's a hard problem, and partly that's because you have the continuous cascade of space-time scales. Uh, but even if I had well-separated scales, that's still really challenging. I, I feel we have to first solve that problem. What if I have two or three distinct fast or slow scales, right, with distinct, two or three distinct spatial scales? How do we even do that one? If I can't do that, I can't do turbulence. Yeah. So, but if I can start understanding those problems, then I have a shot at figuring out like, oh, here's how scales connect. And what turbulence is going to be is now I'm going to have to connect, connect it somehow in a continuous way, right? Uh, anyway, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, definitely. No, that's I, exactly. I, we, we that can is, also that jump. is the hardest problem. <laughs> yeah, we can yeah. jump definitely inside the turbulence work you've been doing uh, and talk about, um, yeah, the interesting uh, thing you mentioned in that paper, which is about, which is about Langevin, uh, Langevin, sorry, it's French, yeah. uh, regression. Um, um, there's this tension between, so there's this inter interesting thing that you can sample in a smart way so that the colored noise decorrelates and so it gets white, uh, but also uh, you can sample slowly enough that you can separate the, the deterministic component, I guess, the macro scale with the micro yeah. scale. 
so yeah. what that means that the question is what's the implication of that in terms of uh what's really happening let's say i mean we for, for with this we get a representation of what's happening but can we can we say something about what's really happening um and then um how do you see the relation between fat tails so uh non-gaussianity uh, super diffusion diffusion uh how does this relate with uh, uh multi-scale problems yeah yeah i mean it, it, so you're asking really hard questions i think because i i think you know when we look at these systems like you know for instance you know you, you take something like a stochastic you you model something in a stochastic way and you say look i've got some process i've got some dynamical system but i got this stochastic contribution to the dynamics right we tend to try to you know so so first of all you can ask the following question is there really a stochastic fluctuation there or is this my way of handling something i can't see mm -hmm. but by the way in other words if if i had better better measurement technologies i would resolve that that scale and say like you know so i often think about that stochastic piece as just being i didn't measure it there's some fast scale physics down there that i'm incapable of getting access to and so i just see the statistics of it and i'm going to try to bring that statistics up one level into my so it's a I, I kind of see it as a sort of most a coarse graining procedure. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, I, I, if you go back to like quantum mechanics, this is a really interesting viewpoint of quantum, right? Which is quantum mechanics is a statistical theory. Now, the, the interesting thing about it, you're framing the whole Schrodinger equation as a statistical evolution of, you know, the probability distribution. Uh, and really inherent in that is this idea of I can't measure below a certain length and time scale. It's, we're incapable of it currently, right? This is, uh, and so I can only see a blurry vision of it, like a statistical version of this. Does that mean that it's really statistical down there? I mean, this is one of these things where, you know, there's all this philosophy of quantum mechanics about Schrodinger's cat. And, uh, but on the other hand, I see it just simply as, you know what? You don't have the measurement instruments capable of getting that that really fast scale physics so you just see a statistical version and that's the best you can do and i think what's interesting about sort of these stochastic modeling techniques is you're kind of now building a hybrid there's a piece of it that's statistical that i can't measure and then there's this part i can't and then you're trying to build the model the best possible which is a hybrid between statistical fluctuations and some made deterministic dynamics and so there's different ways to, you know, so I, I always think of that as sort of like, that's our way of coarse graining mm -hmm. things. But of course, it's always problematic when, you know, we, and of course, when we coarse grain these, we always assume Gaussian statistics, right, <laughs> for the yeah. most part. But of course, you know, that's mostly we, we assume these things because it's just a lot easier for us to do math on. Right, it's uh, when you can characterize that entire process by two numbers, a mean and a variance, and then you. And, but even that's hard in stochastic calculus to 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 get that right. So, um, I actually am excited about this area because I feel like if we can start to think. So, in my own personal view, to start thinking about well, what if, what if this, what if we can start setting up systems to start understanding this what if i start thinking about this as a multi-scale problem in fact mm -hmm. maybe what i'll do is make three time scales so let's mm -hmm. take that stochastic problem we had which we said here's this dynamical system but it's got these stochastic fluctuations what if i make a third time scale which is so the stochastic fluctuations are in an intermediate time scale i'm going to make a much faster one. i'm just going to prescribe some deterministic mm -hmm. dynamics way down here and i'd really like to close the loop and say can I understand how to coarse grain this up so I can make this rigorous mathematical connection down from these really fast micro scales to what looks like a stochastic model? And then even when I start changing that really fast dynamical system, how does it produce fat tails? What was that? What's the kind of dynamical system that would produce fat tails for you, right? That mm -hmm. when they coarse grain up, I got this fat tail distributions that I have to figure out. Have to work a lot harder to figure out how i'm gonna i'm gonna handle them right um so you know i 
I don't know. I, that was a little bit rambling, but I feel like there's some really interesting potentials there when we start thinking about stochastic dynamics. University of Michigan is that Karthik Durasami and uh, built uh, had a he, he sort of he has this really nice way to build closure models because this is the big thing with turbulence, which is you know at some point you lose the ability to to measure or resolve time space, mm -hmm. right? Your measurement sensor has a limit. And so turbulence goes beyond that, right? So you, there's just mm -hmm. a point at which you can't do it anymore. So the question is, how do you, how do you close that model off? And so there's some really nice emerging data-driven methods there. And I like that Karthik's work is really a nice piece of work. Um, but also I, I think that applies more generally. Like if you start building these closure models, can we start understanding more about stochastic ODEs? Because if we start understanding how the closure relationship works, we could say, well, you know, this thing that I'm getting that I'm calling a stochastic process is probably just an unresolved physics, which by learning these closure laws, I see how this works. Maybe it's going to give me more insight to do a better job on stochastic systems. That, mm -hmm. That's my hope, right? It, or maybe we can even figure out how, how to do a better job modeling, you know, our stochastic systems besides just saying, you know, mean zero, you, you know, mean invariance calculations yeah. on, on, on these stochastic processes. Yeah. So I'm hopeful we can do something there, but I think we have a long way to go on. But that, but that to me is still getting right at that multi-scale physics problems of trying to figure out my quantities of interest are often macro scale quantities, but they're all being driven down here at the fastest space and time scales. And I need to figure out how they're, they're connected Otherwise, I get this uniscale physics model that just either is inaccurate or just simply just puts in some stochastic fluctuation. And the only reason I do it is because I just don't know what's going on down there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, uh, let me share that this made me think the following. So, um, I mean, this, this multiscale does not really appear in celestial mechanics, but we have uh, chaos, deterministic chaos. Yeah. And and we have fractals, so we know there's fractals there. So there's some yeah. kind of multiscale. Uh, so um, I've always found weird that we have a deterministic system, but we cannot predict it. Um, but I mean, from this physics point of view, if we say that in some sense uh, turbulence is like chaos, so at a certain point there's something we cannot see, even if the model is deterministic. So we should treat it. I mean, we we, we should stop trying to to see everything because there's a limit. But we still can do something about this this uh, uh, separation. Once we do the separation, maybe we can. Solve, yeah. We could end yeah. up So I, I think this is such an interesting uh, point you made, right? So even like you said, celestial mechanics, you can get chaotic behaviors, right? This initial sensitivity to the initial uh, sensitivity to the initial condition. You know, another way to think about this too is in those same systems, you have also sensitivity probably to the parameters, right? Mm -hmm. So we normally, when we, when we think about like Lorenz, right? We run it and say like, hey, look, if I change the initial conditions slightly, I just run it for a while, they look like, and then boom, they separate very rapidly. Um, same thing can happen if you just change the parameters a little bit. So same initial condition, but now parameterization. And this is what's interesting about the multi-scale physics. If we believe this, this kind of sensitivity is canonical, then micro scale physics, you say, why should I care? Don't, don't I just see the average of this? Yeah, what if you see a slightly different variance? It's changing your parameterization maybe of the coarse grain, which then gives you a very different result, right? That sensitivity comes, and that's where I think the multi-scale aspect, even of these deterministic systems, it's that sensitivity in deterministic systems, which are kind of fascinating to, to look at, right? I think, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot there that we could do. Yeah. And when you said something like, okay, we have the deterministic part, the stochastic, and then something else, uh, where you're just, let's say, projecting imagination, or did you see something in which this is done already? Oh, uh, go ahead. Say that again. What was the question again? Um, when you said uh, we, we can uh, like have a model in which we separate uh, like the stochastic fluctuation, the deterministic part, and then something else, uh, did you see somewhere along these lines already being done, or is, no, it, is it so just much. projecting? I mean, yeah, imagining so, things. So, 
Yeah, no. So I, I think, okay. So, so there's, there's, so more broadly, I think from the modeling perspective is oftentimes we have a model that we kind of feel confident with, so we know comes from first principles models. We might have some, what we call stochastic fluctuations, which are things that are beyond our measurement capability. The other piece that might come in though, is just a discrepancy piece that where you say like, but maybe I'm just missing a deterministic piece mm -hmm. to my model. Yep. So I, what, in general, I think of the model of having the part that we have discovered or we can derive okay, okay. a part that maybe wasn't quite obvious to us that we could, maybe it's hard to derive or it's not obvious to us, but maybe it's, is a, a missing piece of the physics. Usually it's small, right? Otherwise we would have worked hard to mm -hmm. try to get, right? And then there's the piece that's sort of the, the part that we just throw in as a stochastic or noise-driven term, which is that's actually beyond our ability to resolve because of our measurement capabilities. Right. So I, de I definitely think that we, we have progress to make on building upon our, our let's say, our, our platonic model, our, our mm -hmm. idealized model by bringing in discrepancy physics and then also bringing in the contributions of things that are beyond our measurement capability. And I think that yeah. that sets up a nice paradigm for us to think about how we might model things. Mm -hmm. Nice, yeah. And uh, I keep thinking about the relations between fluid dynamics and uh, aerospace engineering, dynamical systems in general. Uh, you worked yeah. a lot on PDEs, uh, partial differential equations. Yeah. And there was in particular one work in the, with the use of deep learning, uh, I cannot recall the title, but yeah. Uh, yeah, for goblet transformation uh, that linearized PDE. Um, yes. So uh, I, I think there's some uh, potential of the of the use of the same techniques in the propagation of uncertainty in uh, ODEs. So when you when you go from the deterministic uh, ordinary differential equation to the Liouville equation or the Fokker-Planck equation in the stochastic case, um, have you ever? I mean, first of all, what you did in the PDE case, and then what's the difference with uh, with Galerkin methods? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that. So that paper, maybe we could start there with deep learning for PDEs was, uh, you know, PDEs in general, right? Obviously, if they're nonlinear, they're, they're typically, they can be pretty difficult to solve. And unless there's, there's very few PDEs, we can, nonlinear PDEs that we can write down, you know, general solutions for. Um, that work was really inspired by, in some sense, this idea of Koopman theory, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was this idea of, a, of some kind of transformation to make things linear. But that idea of Kuhnman theory shows up in other places, not where they didn't call it Kuhnman theory. And for instance, this comes to Berger's equation, right? So the Berger's equation is a, it's like a, a textbook PDE, right? In fact, you know, this is the first, in my, in my applied math background, you take a PDE course, one of the, one of the, the models you consider is, is something like Berger's equation where you see like, look, here's this nonlinear wave breaking problem that you can, you, instead of getting shocks, you, you put a little diffusion there and you get these really interesting solutions. It's nonlinear uh, and, and you, you try to come up with techniques to try to characterize this. And so you, you see this very early on as a canonical example out of PDEs. The other thing you learn is that in the 1950s, uh, uh, Cole and Hoff independently learn, hey, look, you can make this transformation for this nonlinear PD to make it linear. I mean, this is like magic, but it's one PDE only, mm -hmm. right? And it would take quite a lot longer, another 20 plus years till we get to the next set of PDEs that we could do this with. And this is the complete, completely integrable PDE. So nonlinear Schrodinger, uh, Cordovective Vries, there's a class of PDEs where we had this inverse scattering transform. And what it was, was a transformation for these completely integral PDEs that had an infinite number of conserved quantities that you could apply this transformation and linearize the dynamics. So once you applied it, you're now in this spectral evolution space where all the dynamics is linear and then you come back. And so it gave you another class of PDEs that I could solve explicitly by a linearizing transformation. Mm -hmm. So those are the uh, PDE. It, it, so they're hard, few and hard, few and far between to come to, right? Like this is a small class, that was 19, 
early 1970s, they actually laid out this architecture. Hoblowitz, mm -hmm. Kopp, Newell, Seeger, this AK and S number scattering thing kind of put it all together into a really beautiful mathematical framework. But it was quite a limited number of PDEs that could be solved with this technique. So, but inspired by that, the question was really from Craig Jinn's work on this was uh, Craig and Bethany kind of really mm -hmm. led that effort along with Steve and I uh, was to say, well, you know, those are very specialized PDEs. Can you do this more broadly? Mm -hmm. And what they were able to find is that that neural net could actually find linearizing transformations, uh, even for something like the Kuramoto-Shivashinsky equation, which exhibits quite complex behavior, spatial temporal dynamics, in fact, um, chaotic spatial temporal dynamics. And the fact that they found a linear embedding was just kind of unbelievable. You know, we knew that they could probably train a neural network and recover something like the Kohlhoff transform, or maybe even in the completely integrable case, come up with some representation of the inverse scattering transform, because we knew you could do it with those systems. But when they did it for the Kermoda-Shivashinsky equation, it was like, wow, that's kind of unbelievable. And um, remarkably, like, I, I mean, I, I, you know, if you would have told me, you know, had me place, place a bet on whether they could have been done before they started at work, I said, you know, probably not. That's too complex. You know, we can probably do some of these other PDEs and automate some of this, but the fact they did it with that is still, it, to me, is just really remarkable. And actually, interestingly enough, in going to conferences, when I show that slide with what they were able to do, a lot of people are kind of like, they actually were able to, that's amazing, because you would not expect that there is some coordinate system under which the, that KS equation has a linear operator that allows you to advance these solutions. That, that was just a remarkable thing. Uh, I also think it teaches us a lot about, okay, there's a lot for us to learn here on that system. Like somehow we're, I feel like mostly what this has taught me is I'm pretty limited in my mathematical capabilities, mm -hmm. right? Somehow I feel like if I was just, if I knew more or was, I, I, we need new math. Because mm -hmm. somehow this thing is figuring something out that is sort of remarkable. And somewhere down the line, I feel like maybe we could figure out a theoretical construct that says, yeah, of course this works. I can, in mm -hmm. fact, maybe I can linearize any PE, mm -hmm. right? In the right, we just don't have that technology yet. But this is showing us that, well, it seems like it can be done so maybe it should inspire us to build new methodologies mm -hmm. to to understand it a, a little bit like you know in the early days of chaos right like you know a lot of that came from first doing simulations right like mm -hmm. i do this computation this is really surprising to me to right. achieve this result right it wasn't like we had theory first and then we backed it up with computation mm -hmm. we first saw these computations and we were like this seems impossible and wrong <laughs> yeah. right uh and then we figured out actually no not only were we right but there's like a deep theoretical construct to it <clears throat> and i actually think that that kind of chaos embedding in a linear space is also kind of like look at this it can be done mm -hmm. that means we're kind of missing something something's we need we need we need a lift in our mathematical technologies because the computation is telling us something really important, just like it did. Um, now, it might be a little bit heavier of a lift, but just like mm -hmm. we made progress in understanding uh, nonlinear dynamics, chaos, and all this stuff, it took quite a little bit of time. Right? People were so interested in this because it was so fascinating. My hope is that, that kind of work also helps us to be inspired to say like, wow, we're, we, there's a lot to learn here. And, mm -hmm. you know, and speak, this goes back all the way to the conversation we had at the beginning, which is, you know, if we start automating things, are we going to cut out things for people? Like, mm -hmm. I just feel all we're going to do is open even more mm -hmm. interesting things for us to look at, right? That, to me, is uh, the exciting part, which is every time we do this, we're starting to learn things like, wow, that actually worked. Now we have to have a bunch of people to do stuff to explain it. So mm -hmm. we're actually creating more work. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah. 
yeah th this is a nerd joke but it seems like i mean it's not even a joke but it seems like the ai is the outcome of the training of the ai is the data we're getting to back propagate it in the in the yeah. <laughs> something like that um, but yeah definitely there's some work uh, because i mean the, the the surface of what you know is gonna get bigger and bigger and in the meantime we need to keep uh, educating people i guess so education maybe yeah. is part of this um and um and i have a question about this uh yeah i mean you're a big inspiration of course with your codes online i mean when i started uh, working after studying i guess i think i emailed uh, professor branton uh, and played with cindy like i don't know a week after i started right away uh -huh. and uh yeah and then the the, the I talk with your papers a lot, your videos resonated a lot. So, um, why did you start it? Uh, why did you start? Sorry. Oh, start uh, putting videos? I don't know. I, I don't even know what it is. I, I would say the question is also um, related to how can you have such a nice uh, collaboration? Uh, I mean, you, 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 can, you can feel it. I, I don't know you and Professor yeah. Brantle, but I, yeah. I, I know there's something there. Yeah, no, it, it, Steve and I, uh, you know, it, it's awesome. It's so fantastic to have a partner in. We have really similar passions about this. We're just, I mean, look, you know, life, life is a funny thing, right? We have all kind of our, our difficulties. Even being a faculty member has so many challenges, right? In the modern day, we're always needing to go out and try to get funding there's so many distractions from doing the work that you really want to be doing mm -hmm. all the time uh, but the commonality for steve and i and what has been such an amazing bond for us is one is obviously the mutual respect we have the love we have for each other as, as friends uh, but also just we love this like you know, there's a lot of us that come into this field because like even even what we were just talking about with this linear embedding of Kuramoto Shivasinski and training, it is so overwhelmingly exciting to get a result like that. It's just like, you can do that. That is like amazing. So Craig, we were like, Craig is amazing. Like for us, Craig is just the superstar because he was able to do this thing that like, and it, <laughs> It's so inspirational for us to think about, like, we have a lot more work to do. We have to understand this. And I, I know for us, it's just been so exciting to work with our students and our postdocs because they continue to bring a sense of wonder to us because it's like, wow, what they are able to discover, how they're pushing things, how we're learning new things, because uh, it's just so exciting. Uh, so everybody has their points at things that they get excited about, but ultimately for Steve and I, uh, it has been so much excitement around what we've been learning and how all these techniques have allowed us to learn more. And, and, you know, frankly, at the end of the day, you know, machine learning is just another tool that has allowed us a viewpoint on these systems. Uh, you know, it's not like we're converts to machine learning just for machine learning's sake. It's just that what an amazing tool that is allowing us to see these systems that we love in brand new ways and learn so many new things about. So that, that's like the exciting part. And I think we're both into that. And, uh, and the other thing that I think that drives us is the fact that for us, right? I mean, for all of us, like learning science and learning things is such a slog it's so so much hard work that you have to put in and, and we don't mind the hard work but on the other hand we've also felt so many times that after we've learned it it's like wow this could have been so much simpler mm -hmm. if somebody would have just put a little code out and a little explanation and sometimes you know there, there's a little pressure on us in math to make really fancy math which kind of obfuscates what's really going on and if you can explain things simply to people first of all i think they get more excited about it but also can you close that learning gap so we can do science faster mm -hmm. so for us a lot of also where steve and i are on the same page is we want to get our students doing science faster we want you to do fine we want everybody like and we also want to do science faster by getting that kind of information from others, right? Yes. Um, so 
for us, uh, you know, the more we can work with people and bring in a collaborative atmosphere and share, I think we can do even cooler things, uh, you know, scientifically, mathematically. Um, so that was really the ultimate inspiration. And then to see that it actually had a big impact on our students being able to get going faster with their research. And then it was like, oh, this is clearly a very good thing for us to be doing. Our students are happier about it. Our colleagues are happier about it because they're not like, what did you really do? I don't have your code. And did you do this hyperparameter tuning you didn't tell me about? And that's uh -huh. the only way to make it work because we, we all know this happens, right? Like somebody wrote this code, they didn't put it out there. And there was some magic hyperparameter tuning they did that you're never going to be able to do it. Yeah. And it's super frustrating, right? Because now you're frustrated because you feel like you wasted a lot of time versus if people are transparent and can show you uh, and actually put the code out there, put the data out there. I, I just think that it's so much healthier overall. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's been fun and, uh, and, and we kind of thrive and we have a very common viewpoint. And, uh, and also, like I said, just our students and postdocs are so awesome that, I mean, they're really the stars of the show. We get to be sort of front people for them, but at the end of the day, they are just so talented. And, uh, and you know, they're, they're actually doing all the cool work. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I guess we can close it here. It was a final remark, a beautiful final remark. So thanks a lot for yeah. okay. the conversation. You bet, you bet. Thank you so much for having me and a real pleasure. Hopefully this was uh, this is, uh, helpful for people. So. <laughs>